Let's just uh, bow our hearts for a word of prayer, shall we, before we begin. Well, Father, we thank you because you're an awesome God. And we thank you for your word. Well, Lord, we thank you because we know that your word is truth. And Lord, we can trust it. We can build our lives upon it. Lord, and we pray that we would be like the wise man that built his house upon the rock. And Lord, may we do that. And Lord, just live our lives uh, just to glorify you. Father, this morning we just pray that we would have, as has just been prayed as well, have open ears, Lord, and open hearts, that you would speak directly to us. And that, Lord, what you have to say this morning, uh, we won't just hear and then uh, file, but, Lord, we would act upon it as you would have us. And so, Father, we just commit this time to you and pray that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. In the uh, book of Ecclesiastes, We'll read there, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9, it says, The thing that has been, uh, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, um, and there is no new thing under the sun. Um, a guy by the name of Hegel, Chuck Mizzle often quotes him, um, it says, If there is one thing that history teaches us, it's that man learns nothing from history. Um, and that does seem to be the case. Um, so often we go and repeat the mistakes that uh, previous generations have made. Uh, we don't seem to be able to learn. And uh, as uh, Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. This morning, I, I, going through when Ron asked me to come and speak this morning, I was, uh, okay, immediately. So I always say yes to things and then worry about it afterwards. And uh, then I was, you know, Lord, what are we going to do? What, what would you have? And uh, I had this, this idea of what I wanted to say and... As usual, God said, no, no, I want you to say this. And gradually, just God has been confirming things uh, over this week. And uh, it's not a subject I would have initially chosen, uh, because it is possibly controversial um, to a point. Uh, and yet it is all scriptural, as you'll see. The subject basically is the, the coming judgment of the church in the light of the judgment of Israel. Now, let me just explain what I mean by that. You know from, from scripture um, that Israel as a nation, they, they were brought out of Egypt by Moses. Uh, they had 40 years of wandering or so in the, in the wilderness. God brought them into their land and eventually they got a king um, and we read that um, they, they served the Lord for a while then they walked away and, and even in that we see a model of our own lives the way that sometimes we walk with the Lord and then we drift away again and we, we have these idols that we build up whatever those things are that separate us from God and um, so we see a parallel straight away between the way Israel were as a nation and our own lives. But as the nation went on, God started saying, look, unless you're going to obey, this has all been prophesied uh, by Moses, that uh, if, this was, if they didn't obey, then God was going to bring judgment. And as the nation went on, God started reiterating these promises and sent them prophets to say that if you don't obey me, then I'm going to bring judgment. And it got closer and closer. And we have prophets, particularly like Jeremiah, who prophesied to a nation uh, and warned them that God was going to bring judgment because they'd, they'd, they'd gone away from God's word, God's law. And... I believe that we're seeing exactly the same thing happening again in now what we call the church. Uh, and that's what I want to go through and look at this morning. We're familiar, you, you've gone through recently, uh, I've been listening to the podcast um, during Genesis, the way that God uses models in scripture that something happened before and then God is going to does something in the future that was just a model of what was to be. Uh, and I believe that we've got the same type of thing here, that the, the, the judgment that was uh, prophesied to be upon Israel, I believe we're going to see the same thing on the church. Now that may sound strange, but... As we go on, uh, hopefully it will all become clear. Now, uh, as a basis, we're going to use uh, 2 Chronicles. If you've got your Bibles with you, which you should have, 2 Chronicles chapter 34. And we read in verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem one and thirty years. So Josiah was eight years old and becomes king. Could you imagine giving an eight-year-old the keys to your car? 
Well, this eight-year-old was given the keys to the kingdom, and he's put in charge of the whole nation. Uh, incredible responsibility for such a young person. And then we read on, and he, uh, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the ways of David his father, and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. As I was reading that, I just thought, that's incredible, because it says that he walked in the ways of David his father. That's David who was a murderer, an adulterer, a liar, a thief, and yet we're told he walked in the ways of David. And, and in the context, it's not a negative thing. It's saying that it was good that he walked in the ways of David. And what we see here is that God has completely forgiven David. Okay, and it was incredible just to, to have Psalm 32 just read, um, as you'll see in just a moment. In Psalm 51, David, after his little incident with Bathsheba and Uriah and all of that, Psalm 51 uh, records the, um, uh, the prayer of David. And David said, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. What well, is evidence in this verse alone, as well as many other scriptures, that God had completely forgiven And that's just such a great thing to know, that the God that we serve, if we repent and we go before him, will completely wipe the slate clean. So that when Josiah now is told, we read that he's walking in the ways of his father David. None of David's sin is remembered, it's all forgotten. Um, And in Romans 4, Paul quotes Psalm 32, which we've just read. Um, Even as David also describes the blessedness of the man unto whom the Lord imputeth righteousness without work, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And how true that is. You know, if God were to have a list of our sins, what trouble we would be in. You know, we all can try and cover over things that other people don't see, but we know in our own lives there's things going on that we really don't want other people to find out uh, anything about. God knows all those things, but if we repent and go before him, God says he wipes the slate completely clean. Uh, And then this incredible verse from the the book of Isaiah. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The scarlet, the the dye came from a worm, and the the, the material was, was dipped in this dye. For crimson, it was dipped twice. And the whole implication here is that, that our, our, our sin is like a double sin. We, we, we're conceived in iniquity, uh, we're told in, in Psalms as well, David said. And, and we are, we, we're inherently sinful, but then on top of that, we've got our actions and, and the sin that we actually commit. So we're, we're doubly sinful. Not only do we have a sin nature, but we actually have a sin experience in our own lives. But, do, but the Lord says um, that though they be uh, as scarlet, they should be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they should be as wool. And I just thought that was incredible, that as we read this, all of David's sins are forgotten. And I just, that just, just struck me as being incredible. Let's just carry on then. Um, the first part of the third verse says, uh, For in the eighth year of his reign, now by that, this time uh, Josiah is 16 years old, while he was yet young, uh, he began to seek after the God of David his father. Now, just a, a little bit of uh, history of the times for you. Um, Hezekiah... Uh, was 25 year old, uh, sorry, he reigned for 25 years as king of Israel. When he was 42 years old, uh, he had a son called Manasseh. Now we're told that Hezekiah was a good king. Uh, this is Josiah's great grandfather. He was a good king, he served the Lord uh, and did as he should. There's a few little hiccups, uh, which you can read about in Kings and also Chronicles. Um, but by and large, he was a good king. But when he was um, 42, he had his son Manasseh. And Manasseh, uh, at the age of 12, then himself becomes king of Israel. Oh, sorry, should I say king of Judah? Um, and Manasseh then kind of ushered in one of the darkest times in Judah's history. He was a very evil king. In fact, 
Now we read in the beginning of chapter 33, uh, verse 2 uh, of Manasseh, but he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, like unto the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So God is comparing Manasseh with the tribes that were in the land before Israel had got there, who were, were so evil that God got them all kicked out with Joshua and uh, finally with David. Um, Manasseh was a bad king. Um, but we do read at the end of his life, um, that he repented and um, he was taken captive to Babylon. And in 2 Chronicles 33, picking up from verse 12, says, And when he was in affliction, this is Manasseh, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him. And he was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. And it carries on. And he took away the strange gods and the idol out of the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mounts of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem he cast them out of the city uh, and he repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed thereon peace offerings and thank offerings and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel what a transformation in this man's life his whole life had been everything that, that, you would disp- or that God despised and was an abomination to the Lord at the end of his life he goes through this difficult period and then he's, he realizes we've got to get this sorted out and he does, and he repents before the Lord, and uh, we read this, this incredible transformation. Now, looking back at the, the, the map thing we have here, it was Josiah was six years old um, uh, when, it, Josiah, sorry, when, yes, Josiah was six years old when uh, Manasseh died. So for the first six years of Josiah's life, as he was growing those really important early years of his life, he would have no doubt been aware of, of all the evil that had gone on. He would have no doubt been aware of this change of heart that Manasseh had had. He would have also been aware that his own father, Ammon, only reigned for two years and he was murdered and he was an evil king. So he had this contrast between his dad who'd not served the Lord and his grandfather who had served the Lord at the end of his life. And no doubt that was part of what we read here. Uh, for in the eighth year of his reign, he was, while he was yet young, he began to seek after God. Uh, and I'm sure this is all part of the process. And again, it just underlies the fact of, of how important our parents and our grandparents are, and Sunday school teachers, and those that instruct young children in the ways of the things of the Lord. The, uh, the Im- impact they can have on a young person's life is incredible. I remember my own uh, grandmother, my mum's mum, um, she was a, an incredible lady. She really called a, a spade a spade. She was very uh, black and white in the, her approach to things. But I used to get to take the newspaper down. When I got home from school, mum used to send me down with a newspaper for, for that day. And I used to just kind of want to nip in and nip out again so I can go and play with what I was going to do afterwards. But my gran always sat me down and she'd start reading scripture to me or she'd start reading some quote from Oswald Chambers and all these kind of things. And You know, invariably, a, a five-minute job then took up like an hour and a half or something. And, you know, eventually, I actually got to really appreciate it. And I used to go there and just listen to her. Now, she, she died when I was 14. But what an impact she had on my life. And even now, I still remember some of the things she said. Um, and... Just incredible influence. So I'd encourage you, if you've got children or grandchildren, just the little things, just your lifestyle, your actions, can make such a difference. And, and I'm sure that's what we're seeing here with, uh, with Josiah. Um, the second part of verse 3 says, uh, And in the twelfth year, by now he's twenty years old, uh, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem. Now, he's seeing what uh, Manasseh had done. Uh, uh, Ammon, his father, had then brought back all these idols and everything else. So now Josiah himself sets out um, to purge the land again. And, and really, we, we go down from verse um, the second half of verse 3 all the way down to verse 7, uh, picking up in verse 7. And when he had broken down the altars and the groves and had beaten the graven images and the powder and cut down all the idols throughout the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. So he sets out to clear his kingdom 
of any idols. Now, I would suggest to you, because we're going to see in a moment that his next job is to move on to the house of the Lord. I suggest to you, before we are to get involved in, in dealing with things to do with the house of the Lord, we've got to clear our own kingdoms of any idols that are there. There's all sorts of things in our lives that, as, as Paul says, you know, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And we need to just get rid of those things, whether they be um, wrong or just keeping us from the things of God. And just live our lives. You know, the, the time is short. Um, we can see the, the world we're living in. Uh, we can see the clock is ticking. And we need to live our lives like we really believe Jesus is coming back at any moment. Picking up in, uh, in verse 8, we then get this uh, whole repairing of the temple bit. And it says, now in the 18th year of his reign, so by now he's 26 years old, um, about my age, um, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, and, sorry, Shaphan the son of Azaliah and Messiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, uh, the son of Joaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. And when they came to Hilkiah the high priest, they delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites that kept the doors had gathered out of the hand of uh, Manasseh and Ephraim and all of the remnant of Israel and of all Judah and Benjamin, and they returned to Jerusalem. Just a little note um, there. We have in the land, this is after the Assyrians have come and taken Israel captive, and yet we still have the remnant of Israel. There are no ten lost tribes. It's just another one of those verses that underlines that for us. Um, and then we go on, verse 10, and they put it in the hand of the workmen that had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and they gave it to the workmen. This is the, the money they've collected out of, out of uh, Israel, out of the land. They put it in the, the money in the hands of the workmen um, that had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and they gave it to the workmen that wrought in the house of the Lord to repair and amend the house. We'll come back to, to that in just a moment. Even uh, the artificers and builders uh, gave the, they it uh, to buy hewn stone and timber for couplings and to floor the houses which the kings of Judah had destroyed. Now, the, it's interesting here because the people that had destroyed the house of the Lord weren't the Assyrians, they weren't the Babylonians, they were those within the nation. It was God's own people. We're told at the end of verse 11 there that the kings of Judah had destroyed. It was The, the, the problem had come from within. Now, we, we find exactly the same with the church. You know, Persecution from outside tends to make the church stronger. Certainly in the, the letters uh, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Smyrna were a persecuted church, but they were a strong church. Um, but then we find out as the church goes on that problems started to rise from within the church. And, and even by the end of the, the first century, there were so much problems within the church. Uh, and at this point, we're going to start to draw this, this analogy between what happened in Israel and what's happening now. Just some scriptures just to... Um, um, back this up, if you like, um, because we are a spiritual house, as they were there to repair the house of the Lord. So Peter says that we are a spiritual house. You are lively stones. You are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now, one thing I want to make very clear um, is my uh, use of vocabulary. When I'm talking about the church, um, as Arnold Fruchtenbaum puts it, we have the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church is what everybody sees, what you often see on TV whenever some debate's on, you get some person in the dog collar. And that's the visible church. And yet you also have the invisible church, which is the body of Christ. Now, there is no problem within the body of Christ. There is no division within the body of Christ. But the visible church is comprised, uh, as Jesus himself said, and we'll look at some of the scriptures as we go through, 
of wheat and of tares. And they're all part of this one group that the world looks at and sees. In the same way as in Israel, there were those that served God and obeyed God, and there were also the likes of these kings that had actually broken down God's house. Um, so let's just go on. Um, we read in, in Acts, and, and Paul talks about this. He says, for, this is talking to the Ephesian elders on the, the beach at Miletus. He says, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock, over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous walls enter in among you, not sparing the flock, also of your own selves." Shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them? These are people from within what we would call the church. We're going to come up and they were going to draw away disciples after them and they would speak perverse things. Now these aren't people outside the church, they're people inside the church. Um, Jude talks about these, uh, for there are certain men crept in unawares. They've crept into the church. Uh, and they're influencing people within the church. And First John um, 2, verses 18 and 19, uh, John says there, Little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they had no doubt had continued with us. But they went out, uh, sorry, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not uh, all of us. So here John is making that distinction, if you like, between the, the body of Christ and what we would then call the visible church. That they were, they said they went out from us, so they were amongst us, um, but they were not of us. They weren't part of the body of Christ. And yet, to all intents and purposes, people from the outside would look in and see them as what we would call Christians. And we have exactly the same thing uh, in our churches today. Um, 2 Peter we read, But there were false prophets among the people, even as there uh, shall be false teachers among you. Who's he talking to? Talking to the Christians, the church. Who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth uh, shall, e- shall be evil spoken of. Okay, they're going to bring in these damnable heresies, and these are in the church. Okay, we need to understand this isn't some group outside. We're not talking about the, the, the JWs or the Mormons trying to push doctrine on us. These are people within the church. And uh, it's by reason of whom the way of truth shall evil be spoken of. And we see that, that Satan has tried through persecution to destroy the church, and it hasn't worked. He's made the church stronger. And the biggest problems in the church have come from within the church, by these people in the church that may have been converted to a Christian lifestyle, but have never been converted to Christ. And there's a big difference between the two. Jesus himself made this very clear, that there would be these this two things we mentioned a moment ago. Um, Matthew 13, 24-26 says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So we have this dual thing within the church. Um, if you're familiar with the, the parables in Matthew 13, um, the, the parable of the mustard seed, it's a strange one. A lot of people misinterpret it and try to come strange interpretations of it. Jesus was simply saying that the church is going to become something that it should not have been and that we're told that the birds of heaven will come and lodge in the branches thereof. And the birds of heaven in parables or the birds in parables are always seen as being the, the ministers of iniquity, the work, workers of Satan. And so we have these workers of Satan lodging in the branches of the church. 
And it's a, it's a strange picture, but it's exactly what we know has happened. And we see right from, from the early church onwards, uh, these, these things are getting in. And, and it's just gained momentum and momentum and momentum. As we, we go through, we'll uh, look at more of these things. Um, Jesus again said in Matthew 7, verse 13, uh, Enter you at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads unto life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You see, just because people look like Christians, just because they're wearing sheep's clothing and they they bleat like sheep, doesn't make them sheep. Okay, Uh, There's a lot of imposters in the church. And I would add there's a lot of sincere people, and we're going to look at some scriptures to show that in a minute, that there's some very sincere people, but they're sincerely deceived. And um, Jesus here is saying that it's a very narrow way. And yet the whole uh, seeker-friendly movement that particularly in the States was big and uh, had impact over here as well, uh, was this trying to make the church acceptable to everybody. Let's make church fun for people. And, you know, I mean, Christianity is fun. We know that from from being in it. Um, But they're trying to make it so appealing to the world. And and what they've done is they've dropped all the the offensive scriptures, the things that people may be uh, offended by. And... and, uh, They've tried to make it a broad way. And Jesus says that it's not a broad way. It's a narrow way. So it's those within. As, as here the kings of Judah were the ones that have caused the problem with the house of the Lord, that these guys are keen now on repairing. I just want to go back to that verse, um, that word, uh, repair and amend. Well, repair we're familiar with, but the word amend is this Hebrew word korzak. And I was interested actually just looking at the um, uh, concordance. The, the other word, the, word, the way, other ways that word is translated, uh, certainly in the King James, um, we have be constant, constrain, continue, be of good courage, be established, fortify, prevail, strengthen, um, be sure, be urgent, behave self-valiantly, withstand. You see, that sounds more than just dealing with building a, a building with, with you know, stones and, and flooring and stuff like that. This, this implies a whole attitude of heart. Um, and really, my encouragement to you is that we need to, to look at how we address the body of Christ. Or, sorry, how we address the church. The body of Christ is fine. I want to make that clear. But there are those within the, the church that are deceived. And I have a real burden um, for those that are going to churches where the word is not taught. And, and I'll say right up front that the issue is the word of God. Uh, Hebrews 4 verse 12, it's the word of God that brings division. It's living and powerful and it will divide. And uh, let's go on. Um, picking up in verse 12, it says, And the men did work faithfully. And the overseers of them were Jahath and Obadiah, the Levites of the sons of Merai, and Zechariah and Meshulam of the sons of the Kohathites, to set it forward, and other of the Levites, all that could skill of instruments of music. And they were over um, the bearers of burdens and were overseers of all that wrought the work in any manner of service. And of the Levites there were scribes and officers and porters." A whole bunch of people, different ministries, different gifts, all part of this group that are working in the house of the Lord, for, for the house of the Lord. And we all have different gifts, different abilities, different ministries. Um, we all have a part to play in this. And then we go on to the discovering of the law. And this is, this is just incredible. We pick it up at um, verse 14. And we read there, And when they brought out the money, 
that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found a book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Another interesting point that uh, we're told it was given by Moses. And yet many people today um, would tell us that um, the first five books were Hebrew poetry penned in Babylon. I was actually told that by a very... um, key person, um, very um, prominent person in the church. I was at a, a Christian resource exhibition. I had an opportunity to speak to this person and uh, I was talking to them about their stance on, on Genesis and they said, no, 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 it's just Hebrew poetry that was penned in Babylon. Well, really, because we're told here that it was by Moses. And also Jesus himself told us that Moses wrote these books. So there's, there's not really a debate. And um, so that they find this, uh, this book uh, of the law given by Moses. And Hilkiah answered and said to Shapen the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah delivered the book to Shapen. And Shapen carried the book to the king and brought the king word back again, saying, uh, all that was committed to thy servants, they do it. And they have gathered together the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have delivered it into the hand of the overseers and to the hand of the workmen. You see, he's kind of buttering the king up a bit. Look, everything you've wanted to do, it's all been done. You know, Everything's going really, really well. And I just sense in the way this is written that he felt a little bit awkward. How was he going to tell the king that they'd found this book? So he has a great way of doing it. He says, then Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. So I'm like, just pass the buck a little bit. Um, and then Shaphan read it before the king. And listen to this. And it came to pass when the king heard the words of the Lord that he rent his clothes. The law does that. The law brings conviction of sin. And what struck me here is that this guy had been sincere. Josiah had been sincere. We're told right from the start of his life, you know, he wanted to serve the Lord and he walked with the Lord in the ways of David, his father. And yet it's not until he gets to 26 years old that he reads the law, that he actually gets presented, if you like, with the word of God. And there are many, many, many Christians in churches that are sincere, that love the Lord, but they have never been presented with the word of God. I, for many years, was part of a church that did not teach the word of God. It it taught all sorts of things. And as I'm sitting there on Sunday mornings reading through the passage that we're supposed to be learning, and I'm thinking, but it doesn't say that. And I mean, one of the things that really captured for me was, you know, in Psalms, you get at the top of the Psalms, a Psalm of David or whoever the author is. And this minister... stood up to speak and he said and um, the, the psalmist whoever he was and he carries on I think, but David it says Psalm of David you know and it just went on and on and so many things uh, were, were being watered down and there was just no feeding uh, and you could see people's lives you know we, I was part of a youth group where um, people were coming to know the Lord and they were just drifting away from church because there was no teaching there was nothing to feed them and sheep need feet, food even <coughs> This whole idea of the law um, brings this knowledge of sin. Romans 3, 19, 20 says, Now we know that what things whoever the law says, it says to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. I was thinking on the way down here uh, this morning, that um, this didn't happen, okay? But have you ever been in a situation where you're maybe in the outside lane on the motorway, and all of a sudden you see blue lights behind you? And have you ever had that feeling of, <gasps> see, it's not that sin didn't exist before you saw the blue lights, but the law brings knowledge of sin. Okay? That didn't happen to me. I'm just making that very clear. That's, you know, did happen once in the past to me, but that was a long time ago. I've repented and everything. But, yeah, you know, the law, God's law does that for us. It brings the knowledge of sin. The law isn't sinful. The law just exposes the sin. Um, and Romans 7, 7, Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. 
for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Now, I don't know how many of you have heard of Ray Comfort or are familiar with Ray Comfort's message uh, as an American evangelist. Fantastic. I'd encourage you to get some of his materials. Or He just has such a fantastic way of presenting the gospel to people. And maybe you've um, found it difficult to share the gospel with friends and family and people you know. And he just uses the law. And, and, and just simply, I mean, we'll just try it now. You know, how many people here this morning have lied? Okay. You know, what does that make us? It makes us liars, doesn't it? How many people here this morning have stolen anything, regardless of its value? Yeah? Well, you just told me a liar, so, you know. And how many, I don't want to, please don't put your hands up this one, but Jesus said that if you look at somebody with lust in your heart, it's as bad as committing adultery now. I don't want to show of hands. But we know in our hearts that we're guilty of these things. And it's the same with, with hatred. If you've ever hated anybody in your heart, then Jesus said it's as bad as committing murder. Now I was thinking that through once, and I was thinking, yeah, that sounds really harsh, because surely hating somebody's not as bad as actually killing them. And I thought, back to the Garden of Eden, and Eve with the fruit. And how much of that fruit did Eve actually have to eat before she'd broken God's law? All of it? Just a bite? Did she just have to touch it? She didn't even have to touch it, because the moment the decision had been made in her heart, she'd broken God's law. All that happened after that was just an outworking of the actions that had already taken place in the heart. So, and it's the same with us, you know, this is why Jesus said it's out of the heart that precede these things. So, God's law convicts us. And it's very easy to show a non-Christian that they're under the law, they've broken God's law. And you can just simply ask them, if God judges you by that standard on judgment day, will you go to heaven or hell? And you usually say, oh, heaven. And then you have to put them, so do you think God should let murderers and adulterers and liars and thieves, and you go through the other Ten Commandments? You know, do you think you should let those people into heaven? And they go, oh no. And all of a sudden the penny drops. That God cannot let those people into heaven. Therefore, we're in a desperate situation. We need a saviour. And off you go. Psalm 19 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. What is it that converts the soul? The law of the Lord. You see, we're not trying to convince people intellectually. It's great when... um, we can get into our good debates with people and, and show them. We can prove scripture is true. We can prove it's the word of God. But even if you prove it, that doesn't make somebody a believer. They might accept what you're saying, but they're still rejecting it because it's the heart that's the issue. Um, the, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And if we're going to get involved in evangelism, talking to people about the Lord, we've got to use the law as our basis. Okay. Um, Paul sums it up really, Galatians 3.24, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. This is the law points us to the fact that we need a saviour. And there we go. Okay, picking up verse 20. Um, because after this, um, obviously the, the, the king is, is repentant. And it, then we find that the king commanded Hilkiah and Ahikim, the son of Shaphan, and Abdon, the son of Milcah, sorry, Micah, and Shaphan the scribe, and Asiah, a servant of the king, saying, there's five guys that the king gets. He says, go inquire of the Lord for me, and for them that are left in Israel and Judah, concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out upon us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do after all that is written in this book. You know, he's obviously read it a bit by this time. We've had it read to him. And, and he's realized that they're in big trouble because they've not kept God's, God's uh, word and God, they've broken God's law. And here we have then, then going to the prophet and we find there's a prophetess they go to. And prophecy confirms the word. And all the way through scripture we'll find that the prophecy is given. We have the more sure word of prophecy, Peter says. Um, so they go on to Hilkiah and they that the king had appointed went to uh, Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, 
Um, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harash, keeper of the wardrobe, and actually dwelt in Jerusalem in the college. I, I, I just thought it was interesting that, that a family of people that were involved in keeping the wardrobe, I know certain ladies, uh, my wife being one, that would love a job like that when we get to heaven to be keeper of the wardrobe. Just imagine it. It would be great. And she answered them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell you the man that sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the curses that are written in the book which they have read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have burnt incense unto other gods, that they may provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be poured out upon this place and shall not be quenched. So that is the prophecy um, that is given here. Um, and, and obviously the, the, the judgment that is pronounced because they've not kept the word of the Lord. And this is only confirming what other prophets have said all the way through. Um, but then we just, just go on um, down to verse 28. Um, and as for the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, so shall you say unto him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the words that you have heard. Because thine heart was tender, and thou did humble thyself before God, when thou heard his words against his place, and against the inhabitants thereof, and humblest thyself before me, and didst rend thy clothes, and weep before me, I have heard thee also, says the Lord. And behold, I will gather thee to thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered to thy grave in peace. Neither shall thine eyes see all the evil that I will bring upon this place, and upon the inhabitants of the same. So they brought the king word again. Now, we're going to have a slight detour now uh, before we come back and see the king's response. Hezekiah's response when he was faced with a similar thing was, oh, that's great, as long as it's not going to be in my days, I don't mind. Josiah's response is completely different, and we'll see that. But this led me on to something I was doing a couple of years ago as I was reading through this, and it's interesting that one of the things that they're told um, that uh, they've, they've done wrong is in verse 25, because they've forsaken me and have burnt incense to other gods. And I thought, isn't it interesting that in the church today, we start to see these things again. This, this, the emerging church, burning incense, and all these things they're getting back into. We see the same things going on. Now, you may be aware um, of what they call the law of double fulfillment, um, which basically um, states that um, this law observes the fact that often a passage or a block of scripture is speaking to two different persons or two different events that are separated by a long period of time. And there's a kind of a first initial fulfillment, but there's also then a future fulfillment. And there's various places in scripture. Uh, I got that uh, again from Arnold Fruchtenbaum. But there's various cases in scripture where we see that happen. And I honestly believe that as we turn to the book of Jeremiah, we see an exact parallel to what is going on in the church today. So I just want to go through some scriptures. Now, I've put them on, on the slide, but I would encourage you to read through the early chapters. Now, the first thing that struck me was when I went to Jeremiah to just look at some of these things in interest, was that we read the words of Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah. Huh? Who? Hilkiah of the priest. This is the same guy we've just been talking about, the guy that found the law. That were in Anathoth. In the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah. Jeremiah is prophesying this stuff right at the time of the events that we've just been reading. Uh, and the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. And then we go on, um, verse 11 of chapter 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what seest thou? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then said the Lord unto me, Thou hast well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. Now an almond tree buds early in the year, typically January, February time. And uh, it was also known as the watcher um, tree because it was just kind of suggesting that, that something's about to happen, you know, and things. And this is exactly what, what God confirms. Then the Lord said to me, Thou hast well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. Well, the question is, what is God going to perform? 
as we go on, what we find out. Because God in Jeremiah 2 verse 8 carries on, uh, and the whole theme just carries on. I'm just picking out some highlighted verses here for us. The priest said, not where is the Lord? And they handle the Lord, sorry, and they that handle the Lord knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal, and walked after things that do not profit. Does that sound a little bit like the church today? Let's go on. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Sorry, that can hold no water. Um, I was talking to to one of the elders at our church. I was just just talking. He said what he was speaking about the weekend. I I just shared him some of these things. And I I read that scripture, and he said, wow. I went, what? He said, well, what's water to us? He says, the word. I went, oh, yeah, I missed that one. But there are so many things as we go through this that, you know, they've forsaken the word of God, the living water that cleanses us, that we have to be washed by the word. And they've hewed out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. How many corrupt Bible versions or perversions have we got today? There's a new Dutch one that's just come out where they've taken out all the things that are not suitable uh, uh, for today's society because, you know, nobody really is going to give people their shoes or their coat and things like Jesus said. Yeah, we just don't do that kind of thing. So we don't need that in the Bible, apparently. Now, the moment this is only available in Dutch, it's double Dutch, I think, probably. Um, but you know, there are so many of these things. Is it, is it the Renaro of a um, translation? Dave Hunt's uh, been sending emails out about this this, this translation in America. Um, and you know, again, the, the whole idea that Genesis is just a myth, it didn't really happen, all this kind of thing, and, and so many other bits are being undermined. Uh, and today's church has hewed out for themselves systems, broken systems that can hold no water. And I thought, wow, when I read this. For though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much soap, uh, yet thine iniquity is marked out before me, says the Lord. Uh, nitre, uh, potassium nitrate, sodium nitrate is the idea. I, I've never tried washing with that. Um, but God's saying, don't matter what you're going to wash yourself with, you're not going to make yourself clean. What a contrast to what we read earlier. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they should be as wool. What's the difference? The difference is that the ones in Isaiah are people that are repenting. And repentance has been removed from the gospel that is preached by the modern church. Repentance is out because you know, we don't want to tell people they're sinners because it's, it's bad for their self-esteem. You know, and, and we're trying to let people know. Uh, I think it was, um, I'm not going to mention the church, but uh, there was a church, big church in the States. And uh, one of the people there was talking about Madonna. Madonna apparently doesn't have a sin problem. She has a self-esteem problem. Sorry. You know, and the whole idea of repentance has been removed. And I just thought it was interesting. God says to these people, you know, no matter what you wash yourself with, you're not going to be made clean. As a thief is ashamed when he's found out, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes and their priests and their prophets, say, saying to a stock, Thou art my father, and to a stone thou hast brought me forth. And they have turned their back unto me, and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, Arise and save us. And I thought, isn't that just like the modern church that we're living in? That we have this idea, uh, saying to a stock, thou art my father, and to a stone, thou hast brought me forth. Well, what do many churches believe? They believe that it rained on the, the rocks for millions of years, and eventually the minerals came into the ocean, and those minerals suddenly became together. And had a nice little lesson from Vidge when he was down to see us recently about, you know, all the way these things form, you get your, your, your proteins join together, and you build up your amino acids, sorry, to form your proteins, and all that kind of stuff. I've got a bit of paper somewhere with it all on. But, you know, this is what so many in the church believe, that we're just the product of evolution, saying we've come from a stone. And this was the, the crime, if you like, that God was, was holding against the people in Israel at this time. And notice again there uh, that it says, in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. 
Do you remember the scripture when Jesus said in Matthew 7? We'll look at it later but anyway. But when Jesus says that these people will cry out, Lord, Lord, in the time of their trouble. The Lord said unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Has thou seen that which backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there has played the harlot. I read that and I thought, I, I read this years ago and I never picked up on this. When you think of harlot in scripture, I don't know about you, my mind went straight away to Revelation 17, where we read that a woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet colour and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Now, many see that whole thing as being the Catholic Church. i got a slightly different take. I think because we're told the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, I think the woman is a, is a much bigger entity that goes all the way back to Babylon. The Catholic Church is what the woman is clothed in for now. In, in the same way as the seed of the woman in Genesis, um, sorry, Revelation 12, the seed of the woman was clothed in Israel. Okay, just a slight uh, interesting point for maybe study some other time. But nevertheless, the Catholic Church certainly is part of this whole thing. And on that basis, if, just if, Israel in this context is representing the Catholic Church in the days we're living in, what about Judah? And I thought, well, what about the Reformation churches? And just bear with me as we go through this, and you'll see why I'm, I'm saying this. And I saw when all the, for when all the causes whereby uh, backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorcement. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. What are the Reformation churches doing now? They are getting back into this emerging church. They're going back into exactly what the Catholic Church has been into for, for decades, for, for centuries. And they're going back into this kind of thing now. Uh, and yet for all of this, uh, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned unto me with a whole heart, but faintly says, saith the Lord. And the Lord said unto me, that backsliding Israel has justified herself more than treacherous Judah. Now if this is a model that we're seeing here, and Israel is representative of the Catholic Church, and Judah is representative of the um, Reformation churches that came out of that time, um, then the implication is that, that Israel has justified herself more than treacherous Judah. Can that be so? Well, what do we find when we look at the seven churches in Revelation? Um, the, the Chapters 2 and 3, Thyatira, which represents the Catholic Church, of that God says, I know thy works, thy charity, service, and faith, and thy patience, thy works, and the last to be more than the first. God actually commends them for what they've done, and the Catholic Church has stood up for many good things. They're, they're anti-abortion, uh, they've taken a, a good stance on the homosexual issue, all these kind of things. They have had good works. The number of... Um, Hospitals and, uh, and um, establishments that the Catholic Church has supported and financed and helped, they have had some good things. And yet we know that from a gospel point of view, they're a long, long way off. And yet when we get to Sardis, which deals with the Reformation churches in Revelation, not a good word is said about them. So in that sense, um, Israel has justified itself more than Judah. The Catholic Church has justified itself uh, more than um, the Reformation churches. I remember uh, at um, Southampton, Simon had a conference a little while back, and uh, Jakob Prash was speaking about the, the corruption that has come into the church as a result of the Reformation churches, the, the doctrines that have been um, brought to the fore, uh, which are completely unbiblical, and yet have now been accepted and adopted. Let's just move on with these. Turn, O backsliding children, says the Lord. Now, here we have not Israel or Judah, but the children. Now, I would suggest these are the ones, if you may, who have ears to hear. 
Turn, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will take you, one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. And I praise God for people like Chuck Smith and the whole Calvary Chapel movement um, that God has used to bring pastors that teach the word of God, that feed the, the, the sheep with knowledge and understanding. Uh, it's interesting that God talks to these people and says, I will bring you to Zion. Okay, let's just carry on. A voice was heard upon the high places, weeping and supplications of the children of Israel, for they have perverted their way, and they have forgotten uh, the Lord their God. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. That last verse was, was putting it in context that it was Israel as opposed to Judah that was being referred to. And again, if that model that I mentioned earlier is correct, uh, and again, Acts 17:11. Check this out yourself. Don't just take what I'm saying. Um, but then we find here, truly is vain, in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills. Where does the Catholic Church hope for its salvation from? They're told that there is no salvation outside of the church, the Catholic Church. So they are looking to the hills. Rome was built on seven hills. They are looking, if you like, to the hills of Rome for their salvation. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Straight away, uh, Matthew 13 comes to mind. Circumcise yourself uh, to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart. This is a call out of religious externalism. This is not just living a religious life. It's not being part of some church because it's comfortable. So many people are in these churches because it's comfortable. And yet God is calling out of this to a real relationship with him. Lest my fury, listen, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. What is God saying will be the judgment for these people that are in this system that won't come out? He's saying that he'll burn them with fire that none can quench. And what do we read in Matthew 13, the parables at the end of it? It says, So shall it be at the end of the world, the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, I believe this will happen at the time of the rapture. Uh, and we'll go on, I'll explain that in just a moment. Um, declaring in Judah and publishing in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet in the land, cry, gather together and say, Assemble yourselves and let us go to the defense cities. This cry goes out in Israel as it was then. That, you know, blow the trumpet in the land, gather together. And I'm thinking, 1 Thessalonians 4, the trumpet is going to be sounded and we're going to be gathered together. This is those that are, are seeking the Lord. And we, we read of this separation in Matthew 13, back to the parables, uh, verse 30. Talking of the wheat and the tares, you know, Jesus says, let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I'll say to the reapers, gather you together first the tares and bind them into bundles to burn them, consistent with what we just read. But gather the wheat into my barn. You see, the time that the wheat will be gathered into his barn is the time of the rapture. But at the same time, we we gather together first the tares. And I believe that we're actually seeing that happening now. That The tares, the false church that is amongst what we see as the church, is gradually being gathered together. We're starting to see a a separation between the churches that preach and teach the word of God and those that are just, if you like, playing games. Uh, And they've got this religious exterior, but it's nothing deep down in their hearts. Jeremiah 4, verses 6 to 8. Set up the standard towards Zion. Retire, stay not, for I will bring evil from the north and a great destruction. The lion has come up from his thicket and the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make the land desolate and thy cities shall be laid waste without an inhabitant. For this good you with sackcloth, lament and howl, for the fierce anger of the Lord is not turned back from us. What happens after the rapture, after we're gone? Well, we know clearly from scripture that there will be a false church 
uh, all Revelation 17, 18 deal with that. But the, the thing that's going to immediately happen is that somebody's going to come in the place of Christ. You see, I read this and I thought, the lion has come up. And I thought, oh, is it talking about Jesus? No, it's not. It's talking about somebody, because we read, think of the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But this is another lion that comes impersonating in the place of. Um, and this lion has come up to destroy the Gentiles is on his way. And we read about this destruction that's coming. And it shall come to pass at that day, says the Lord, that the heart of the king shall perish, and the heart of the princes and the priests shall be astonished, and the prophets shall wonder. Then said I, Ah, oh, Lord God, surely thou hast greatly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying, You shall have peace, whereas the sword reaches unto the soul. You see, I read this and I thought, is God, God doesn't deceive, does he? But when we look at the New Testament, we read, because they receive not the love of the truth, this is 2 Thessalonians 2, 10, and to 10 to 12, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved, and for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned, who believe not the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. So we see, I mean, I'm convinced that we have a model here, but even if we don't, the parallels are just extraordinary of what was going on in Israel and what is happening in the church we're in today. Jesus, back to Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many uh, many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's an incredible scripture. We've got a bunch of people who have prophesied, who have cast out demons, done many wonders. All right? And we're told that they've done it in his name. And what does Jesus say to them? Depart from me. I never knew you. You see, just again, because people appear to be Christian, and we see it littered on the, the uh, supposedly Christian TV, these people that sang all these things, and supposedly doing many wonders prophesying, casting out demons. And yet Jesus says that there's going to be a bunch of people in that category who are obviously not saved. And what we have here, as I said at the start, is this church that is comprising of the true believers that love his word and those that don't. Destruction upon destruction is cried for the whole land is spoiled. Suddenly in a moment my tents are spoiled. That's suddenly, uh, in a moment. Because we read in Revelation 17, 17, 18, we're going to look at the scriptures um, here, uh, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour, that's suddenly. The false church, we're told, will be judged. God will destroy it. And he's going to use the ten kings under Antichrist to destroy it. Um, for in one hour is thy judgment come. Uh, and then we've, we've got the scriptures putting out the highlights. When Babylon is destroyed, this false religious system, then people stand afar off for fear of the torment. Now, my personal view, whether it's right, we'll find out when we get there, is that the ten kings under Antichrist are going to launch a nuclear strike against Babylon and destroy it and take it out. The reason I say that is because everything would seem to suggest that. Because the merchants of these things which were made rich by her, and incidentally, uh, I'm working for a company that we supply things to churches, uh, and I hate supplying, we we supply sound equipment, I hate supplying sound equipment to churches where you know that it's going to be used to effectively preach false gospels. Uh, A bit of a difficult one, but, you know, but there is so much money that is generated by the church. There is such a big business. There's an exhibition that takes place in Europe. It is huge where all these companies, not Christian companies, but they go to provide things for churches from, from fancy altar cloths that, you know, 1500 pound and above and, you know, these lovely big gold crosses that you can have in your church. And there is such an industry. The merchants of these things, which were made rich by her, shall, um, shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment. 
Ham uh, for in one hour. Again, this whole suddenly thing. Uh, and they stood afar off um, with, uh, and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what city is like unto this great city? And he said unto me, the waters which I saw, this is Revelation seventeen fifteen. waters which I saw where uh, the horse sits of peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. This, this, this religious system has influence worldwide. It's not just the Catholic Church. It's the whole of this false religious system. Uh, then, uh, sorry, And the ten horns which thou saw come up on the beast, these shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat the flesh and burn her with fire. Exactly as Jesus said would happen. You know, when, when this, this time comes, uh, there's going to be this division. The false church will be judged. Just a, a schematic of it, we've got the tribulation, the church is raptured at the beginning of the tribulation, uh, the second coming obviously at the end of the tribulation somewhere. Uh, Mystery Babylon will be in power for the first three and a half years. Uh, the ten kings then ruling under Antichrist will then destroy that false religious system. I'll just skip through these. These are scriptures that just talk about the destruction that seems so incredibly to fit the whole model. Um, I'm just conscious of time, so I'll just move through some of these. But just read it in Jeremiah. The opening chapters of Jeremiah just seem to fit so incredibly where the church is at. And I'm going to bring this to a conclusion in just a moment. Um, it's interesting that the, the last part there of Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 30 talks about thy lovers will despise thee, they will seek their life, uh, they will seek thy life. That's what will happen to false Babylon, uh, to, to uh, mystery Babylon the Great. It will be destroyed by those that once she trusted. Uh, talking of these people again, uh, the, the whole of this, this system, they have belied the Lord and said, it is not he, and neither shall evil come upon us, neither shall we see sword or famine. Well, isn't that what the church is saying? That we're going to conquer the world. We're going to win the world. And there, there won't be, some are even saying there won't be a second coming. That, that Jesus came back in AD 70 and reigns in the hearts of his people. Well, I, I missed the, the lightning across the skies and all that kind of stuff, if that's when it happened. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised and they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. At the uh, pastor's conference in York um, a few months back now, we were talking to a couple uh, that, um, in fact, I think they were actually here for a while. Uh, we were talking to them uh, and they've moved up um, up York Way. Um, and they said they'd struggle finding a church. They went to a church for a while and the minister they were talking to him. And they're saying, you know, but you know, we're just not really comfortable because the word isn't being te- taught. And he turned around and says, the, the, your problem is you rely too much on this book. You know, and here we have, back in Israel, God is saying that the word, that the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. And it's the same in the church we're living in today. Also, I said, watchman over you saying, hearken to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not hearken. How many people have warned about the rapture and that we need to be ready? And what does the modern church say? There's not going to be a rapture. This is happening before our eyes. The, some of the, the big church growth manuals are all putting forward this idea. Hear, O earth, behold, and I will bring evil upon this people, even the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not hearkened unto my words, nor to my law, but rejected it. Verse 21 of Jeremiah 6. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will lay stumbling blocks before this people, um, and the fathers and the sons together shall fall upon them, the neighbor and his friend. He goes on. Um, the, Jeremiah 7.34 Then I will cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. Isn't that just like we're told will happen when Babylon is destroyed? The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Lo, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? It's incredible. It really is incredible. I was at a church, uh, I think it was the beginning of this year, um, and a minister t- stood up in front of his, his congregation and said to them, uh, he was just talking about a passage in Scripture, um, and just said, oh, this is one of those mistakes in the Bible. 
They've rejected the word of the Lord to what wisdom is in them. <laughs> How about this? For they've healed the hurt of, my daughter, hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Peace plans that we hear about being put forward. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? How many times do we hear on the news about these churches that are you know, pro-homosexual relationships, even for ministers, they're saying, it's okay. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush. Therefore, they shall fall among them that fall in the time of their visitation. They shall be cast down, says the Lord. When I was going through this, I had to keep looking to the top of the page to see whether I was in the New Testament or in Jeremiah, because it is so much like what we're going through. Um, the verse from Thessalonians I'm sure you're familiar with, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, for when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day shall overtake you like a thief. Um, another verse there, peace, peace, when there is no peace. It, just, it goes on and it goes on. For the pastors have become brutish, they have not sought the Lord, therefore they shall not prosper, and all their flocks shall be scattered. They are turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, as I said earlier, so is happening now. That The iniquities that, that were uh, perpetuated by the Catholic Church um, are now being revisited under the emerging church. I, I think Brother Roger Oakland was speaking about that, uh, certainly at the conference in London. Uh, he was talking about these things. That they're just going back now to these Catholic traditions, trying to find ways that we, this whole labyrinth, you walk through these candles, and it brings you closer to God. It's like, where's the scripture for that? Um, then shall the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem go and cry unto the gods unto whom they offer incense. I just, so much of what we read was the situation in Israel that Jeremiah was prophesying about is the same that we're going through now. Okay, that's those. There's more. Uh, they're the highlights. Uh, I encourage you to look at it. Uh, I just think you'll see there a model of the days we're living in. Now, what was Josiah's response when, when we get uh, back into this? Verse 29. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up into the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites and all the people, great and small. He read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of the Lord. What was his response? He just preached the word. That's what he did, just preached it. And after this we go on to find that he makes a covenant with God. Um, in fact, just read it. The, the king stood in the place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform all the words of the covenant which are written in this book. And... Uh, and then uh, he caused all that were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand to it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of uh, God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations out of all the countries that pertain to the children of Israel and made all that were present in Israel to serve, even as the Lord their God, even serve even the Lord their God. And all his days they departed not from following the Lord God of their fathers. Just to conclude, there's two groups. We have the tares. What do we do about them? Well, Jesus clearly said that with the tares in Matthew 13, um, let both grow together until the time of the harvest. Jesus said, don't you try and pluck them out. If you try and pluck out those that are teaching the false things, you could damage the wheat in the process. So don't worry about those people. God has got that covered. The question then is, what about the wheat that is amongst the tares? What about the Christians that are in these churches where they're getting taught these false things. And this is what I have such a burden for. A couple of years ago, I was up at a conference at Skipton, and I was praising God, thinking, this is lovely, great teaching, and just wonderful fellowship. And I thought, but where are all the other people that are in churches? They know nothing of this stuff. And it really, from that point, became a real burden on my heart. And we read in Revelation 18, verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins. Now God is saying that in this system are his people. 
Now we need to pray for those people. We need to, if we have opportunity, preach the word to them. Be instant in season, out of season. Rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come, the time is here. When they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts, they shall heap up to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, and do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach. This is what we must be like, all of us here. Because we've got the, the benefit of God's word. We must be apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose, uh, that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And we read in John, thy word is truth. And, they that may, uh, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. Now that scripture is in amongst uh, a passage of scripture where we're also told that we should be rightly dividing the word of truth. truth. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.15, um, 2 Timothy 3 verse 5 talks about those who have a form of godliness but deny its power. 2 Timothy 3 verse 5 says that these people are ever learning and never, never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. And we also read that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So it's clearly in the context of all this deception that's going on that um, Paul is saying to Timothy that we should be apt to teach, instructing, in meekness instructing, um, and that we should, uh, um, peradventure, God give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Okay. Um, so we must speak the truth in love, is the bottom line. Uh, I heard somebody once say that truth without love is hard. Love without truth is weak. So often people don't like to just talk on the love side, but we need truth. If it's not got the truth with it, then it's powerless. Okay, just a summary then. Josiah cleared his kingdom of idols. And I would encourage you to, there's such a job to be done. We need to clear our own lives. We haven't got time for things of the flesh, things of this life anymore. You know, the things that you, you watch on TV, ask yourself, is it actually helping you spiritually? I stopped joy watching some of the soap operas. She was actually quite happy to do it. But we actually, we've talked, it has a negative effect on us. And you've got to think about what you're watching. And, you know, we haven't got time to play with those things. Um, Josiah then said about repairing the house of the Lord. And he discovered the word of God, the law. And when he did, he repent, when he was faced with the law, and he sought his God. Um, he receives the prophecy of this coming judgment. He doesn't try to reinterpret the prophecy notice uh, to make it socially acceptable or to allegorize. He just takes it as he believes that God has said what he means. Then he takes that word that has changed him and he preaches it to others. And then he makes a covenant with his God to serve him with his heart, all his heart and soul. And that, I believe, is really the message for us. This is in closing. Because this is something that really challenged me. In 2 Kings chapter 7, there's this incredible account. Um, Israel was under siege by the Syrians. And there was four lepers. And this is the account. And there were four lep- the leprous men at the entering of the gate. And they said to one another, why sit we here until we die? If we say we, uh, if we, if we enter into the city, then famine is in the city and we shall die there. If we sit here, we will die also. Now therefore come, let us fall unto the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. If they kill us, we shall but die. They can say, we're going to die anyway, so let's go into the Syrians, let's go to their camp. If they kill us, fine. If they feed us, then we're going to live. And it says, and they rose up in the twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians and 
When they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. For the Lord had made the host of Syrians to hear a noise of chariot and the noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. This is what the Syrians thought would happen. So they fled. Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their, their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, for they fled for their lives. They've left everything there. And when these lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and did eat and drink and carried then stent silver and gold and raiment and went and hid it and came again and entered into another tent and carried then also, thence also and went and hid it. So they're just like, look at this lot. Then they said to one another, we do not well. This day is a day of good tidings and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now therefore come that we may go and tell the king's household. And that's the challenge this morning. Because we have an incredible feast in 66 books by 40 authors over 2,000 years. We do. This is an incredible book. We've been so blessed. And we've got pastors that are teaching us. But there are people in other churches that know not any of this stuff. Now, you can't go and drag them out, but we can at least pray for them. Because God says to those people, come out from among them, my people. That God's people are in there. And... I believe as we get closer and closer to the rapture, we're going to see more of a divide. And I believe many are going to realize, and they're going to have to jump ship, because they won't be able to tolerate all the things that are going on. But what we've got to do is, like these lepers, understand that this is a day of good tidings for us. And it's up to us to go and tell the king's household. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we're just in awe at your word. Lord, as we saw at the beginning, what has been will be in... Lord, what happened in the days of Josiah and Jeremiah seems to be repeating itself now. And foolishly, men are abandoning your word for new revelations, for new understandings. And Lord, we know how foolish that is. We have your word and that is all we need. Your word is truth. And we have been so blessed, Lord. We thank you for our pastors. Father, we thank you for Ron and Marcy, for their ministry and the work they do. We pray you bless them. Father, wherever we're from, we pray for our pastors and our leaders, that you would bless them as they continue to feed us with your word. But Father, may we take this message to the king's household, to your household, to all those that we have opportunity to speak to, and in meekness, to just gently encourage, to teach your word. Lord, as Josiah, when he was convicted by this, went and preached your word. Oh, and Father, we just pray that all who have ears to hear will hear, and that, Lord, you will save a multitude. And that together we will stand before your throne and we will be able to lay those crowns before you and worship you together for eternity. And we'll cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.